Well, good morning. In the uh, Old Testament, the God's people gathered around Mount Sinai, and so God would come down to meet, and they would His face was never seen, but the people were kept at a distance. And so darkness would descend and fire and smoke would be seen and and cover the mountain and trumpets would blare, uh, the people's hearing, and the the whole scene was so terrifying that even Moses himself would say once, I'm trembling with fear. And so I can imagine if if Moses would feel that way in the presence of God, how might I feel? (laughs) You know, if Moses couldn't hardly handle it, how can I handle it? And so at Mount Sinai, God comes down to the mountain in this, this terrifying splendor And the people are kept at a distance. But now, we have the Son of God who goes up a mountain and people come to Him and His disciples sit with Him face to face. So at Sinai, God speaks these thundering words so terrifying that the people themselves beg beg Moses, tell God, don't talk anymore. We don't want to hear Him anymore. It's too much for us. So the people were kept at their distance. But when we come to this person of Jesus Christ, Here the Son of God speaks, not thundering words of of condemnation, but these wonderful words of blessing. And here God reveals the, the mystery of the ages, and that is that the kingdom of God is not marching into our reality through military conquest or these great displays of fiery power leading people into forced submission, but rather the kingdom is walking into our presence as a humble peasant from an unremarkable town who, though capable, very capable of destroying the world with a word, instead brings the very healing the world needs through a word. Blessed. Blessed. And so, the, the, the kingdom of God, seemingly so out of reach for centuries, for those who, who were looking for it and trying to, 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 to grasp it and wanted to be a part of it, it was out of reach because of rebellion and punishment of God's chosen people. And so it's now available to anyone who would hear and obey the words of this king. And although there's a full realization of this blessing of the eternal kingdom of God that's reserved for a time of judgment, it's not here. It's the already but not yet. Jesus promises to show us how today, this day, we can experience this already but not yet. It's a kingdom glimpse. It's God's kingdom come. And so we saw last week that Christ begins with this astonishing statement on this mountainside. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. So how true blessing comes when we acknowledge our own spiritual poverty. And so when we look to Jesus for what we do not have, and we know that in Him we have everything we need, and when we abandon the the kingdom of me and we submit ourselves, we embrace the kingdom of He, then the kingdom rule of God is available to us. And so the law of Moses left us at this this ground level with no way to climb. And so it's like one of those fire escape ladders. You've seen these on buildings. And so it's, it's just out of reach. And so someone above has to lower that ladder down in order for anyone to climb up, for you to be able to climb up. And so the Gospel of Jesus lowers that ladder providing for us a way to reach the spiritual heights that God has always intended for us to reach. And so this is a blessing. And the law will bring you to a place called poor in spirit, and it's there where Jesus meets us. And then He goes on to say in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
And he uses the, the strongest word he could have used in his language here. It's the word that's, that's used for mourning the dead. It's this gut-wrenching, passionate sorrow for one who, who was loved. You remember the story of Jacob and his grief when he believed that Joseph, his son, was dead. That, that, that's the same word that's used here. And that, that, that grief, that just bone-cracking pain that, that's a, that occurs. And so it's defined as this kind of grief that takes such a hold on a person that you can't hide it. And so it's not only the sorrow that brings an ache to the heart, but it's also a sorrow which brings these unrestrainable tears to the eyes. Blessed. And so we've seen how blessing is this all-sufficient presence of God's kingdom reign in our lives. And so why would Jesus say that those who mourn are blessed and that they'll be comforted? Well, perhaps the Apostle Paul can kind of help us understand a connection here. He wrote a letter wrote a couple of letters to some Christians around Corinth. And so in his second letter, his first letter was filled with some pretty stern corrections and some, some sinful situations that were going on. A follow-up letter, we know 2 Corinthians, and in chapter 7 of this one, in verse 8, he says, For even if I made you sad by my letters, talking about the first one there, I do not regret having written it, even though I did regret it, for I see that my letter made you sad, though only for a short time, now I rejoice, not because you were made sad, but because you were made sad to the point of repentance. For you were made sad as God intended, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. For sadness, as intended by God, produces a repentance that leads to salvation, leaving no regret, but worldly sadness brings about death. For see what this very thing, this sadness as God intended, has produced in you. What eagerness, what defense of yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what deep concern, what punishment. In everything, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So there is no sin in natural mourning. We know that Jesus wept. We have the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. And so grieving over something or someone that, that's taken away or removed from us is, is modeled by Christ. He grieved over Lazarus and, and, and the, the sorrow in their family. But there are other kinds of sorrow. So Paul warns us about a worldly sorrow, sorrow that leads to death. And so this sinful mourning is longing for what God has not given. And so we have an example of this. I was thinking about um, Ahab, who was a king of Israel at one point in time. And God allowed him a, 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 a palace. He allowed him a kingdom. But next to this palace was a vineyard. And Ahab wanted that vineyard. The vineyard was owned by this poor man named Naboth. And so Ahab set his eyes on Naboth's vineyard. And one translation says that Ahab became vexed and sullen. <laughs> vexed and sullen. And so we might say today he was pouting. Ahab was pouting over this vineyard that he could not have. And so why was he pouting? Because he couldn't get his hands on it. He couldn't grasp it. And so another word for this is coveting. And it led to the murder of Naboth so he could get this vineyard. And so coveting is being brokenhearted, but it's being brokenhearted for what others have that you do not have. And so that's sinful mourning. And that's a killer. It's a soul killer. It's a spirit killer. And so it leads to death. And obviously this is not what Jesus is talking about here when He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
And so this morning that, that Jesus speaks about, that Christ promises this divine comfort, this is a sorrowing, a mourning over our sins. It's a godly sorrow. And so what many call Christianity today is kind of surrounded by a form of faith. A form of faith that's been so emaciated and so diluted that it's almost unrecognizably different from what Jesus spoke about when He taught. And so thank God for the marvelous truth that we are justified by faith. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, we read that, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So why does faith justify and not works? Well, a believer is justified by faith because faith unites us to the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ justifies and sanctifies and glorifies believers through the power of His shed blood. And so this power of the blood here is applied to the life of the believer by the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So simply believing certain things will never change your life. The, the, the devil believes certain things about Christ and about God, but it has not changed him one bit. And so simply believing something does not change our lives. Christ changes you. And so faith is this bond of a living union with Christ. And when Christ enters a life, He comes to forgive and He comes to make holy. And so He accepts us as we are, but His grace will never leave us where we are. And so the replacement of faith, faith which unites a person to Christ, replacement of that is with mere compliance of certain truths, just simply checking boxes and making sure that we're just kind of following some rules, that leads thousands of people to accept Christ without ever bowing to His Lordship in their lives. And so we end up with a form of faith that does not change our lives. So how far is Scripture from this empty way of thinking? Well, in Isaiah 55 and verse 6, the prophet speaks to the people who were living this empty faith. Seek the Lord while He makes Himself available. Call to Him while He is nearby. The wicked need to abandon their lifestyle and sinful people their plans. They should return to the Lord and He will show mercy to them and to their God for He will freely forgive them. So God says to, to the disobedient, you've got to forsake your way. You've got to stop doing what you're doing. You've got to turn from that. And that's a million miles away from just simply admitting I'm a sinner and continuing on the way I want to do things. Or listen from the New Testament in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. God's solid foundation remains standing, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from evil. So if you are going to name the name of the Lord, here's what it means. Run from evil. We've got to run away from it. And so this call of God to repentance, which involves a change of direction, this call to repentance has been replaced by just admit you're a sinner and ask Jesus to forgive you. That's all you've got to do. And I'm searching... If you will help me find where in Scripture do we have a promise of God to forgive any sin that we are not willing to forsake, that we are not willing to give up. And so union with Christ that humbles the sinner and leads to a holy life, it's been replaced by this emaciated form of faith that can easily be added to the American dream. 
And so faith's been redefined to accommodate our refusal to change. This is what faith means. It means just do what you want, ask God to forgive you, and then go on with life. Do what you want. Repentance has been reshaped to fit kind of our indulgence. And there's no blessing in that. Scripture does not offer or promise a blessing in that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so spiritual mourning follows naturally from becoming poor in spirit. When you see you don't have what it takes, then you mourn over your sins and you mourn over the righteousness that you do not have. Because every sin holds this, this passing pleasure. I mean, that's why sin tempts us. I mean, otherwise, why would we sin if there weren't some offering of pleasure in it, as momentary as it may be? So how can you learn to, to, to hate what you used to love and love what you used to hate? You remember Saul was the first king of Israel, led his army into battle at one point, and then he took all the captured loot from, from those that he had defeated, but he took it for himself and for his men. And then he cheated and he deceived and he lied and, and, and to cover it all up, right? But later he was found out. And so the prophet Samuel confronts him with this truth of, of his sin. And Saul had nowhere to hide. And so he confessed. His back was against the wall. And so he confesses. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 24. Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have disobeyed what the Lord commanded and what you said as well. For I was afraid of the army and I followed their wishes. And I can imagine that caught in that moment that Saul had a long face when he was saying this. I mean, isn't that the way we are? When we're caught in our sin, that immediate reaction is one of, oh, Oh no, what has happened? But then he says something else to Samuel. In verse 30, he replies again, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Go back with me so I may worship the Lord your God. So he appears sorry, but it sounds to me like he would have continued what he was doing if he could have. See, he says he's sorry, but it appears his focus is on damage control. Yeah, I, I know I messed up, but will, will you go with me so, so everybody else will think nothing's happened? Because I don't want to lose my reputation and everything I've got, right? And so has there been a change of heart? It's like, it's like I'm about to read y'all's mail. Do you stop at stop signs because it's against the law? Or do you stop at stop signs because you don't want to pay the fine of a ticket? See, that's the difference there. Judas grieved over his sin and betraying Jesus, but he didn't have spiritual mourning. Why? Well, his grief led him to despair. It's a different kind of grief. See, grief that leads to despair is the work of Satan. It's not the work of the Holy Spirit. Satan works to bring us to, a, to, to despair ourselves, but he never brings us to hope in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit does bring us to despair of self and how we've been living and acting. And He brings us to hope in Jesus Christ. And so that's how you tell the difference between what the devil is trying to do in your life and what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Because hope is a signature mark of spiritual mourning. And outside of the kingdom of God, we may mourn our sins. People mourn when they mess up and, they, and they, they, things go, you know, their, their decisions, their choices, their actions cause harm to themselves or others. People mourn that. Absolutely. 
But living in the kingdom reign of God, our mourning is infused with hope. It's not left there in despair. So we grab hold of that comfort in and through Jesus Christ. And, and without that, it's not spiritual mourning. It's just the devil trying to make you despair. And so, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How are they going to be comforted? How do you comfort those who are this spiritual mourning? What in all the world can comfort people who feel the weight of their own sin? Well, the better question would be, who can comfort people? who feel the weight of their own sin. Christ knows about spiritual mourning. And it's not because of His own spiritual mourning, because He was without sin. He had no sins to mourn. But Christ mourned over the sins of the world. He mourned over the sins of others. He grieved the devastating effects that sin has on the lives of of, of humans, of us. And so we see him mourning over Jerusalem. He comes down from the Mount of Olives and he weeps over a city that has rejected him, that has turned their backs on him. And he knows they're headed only one way, and that's to destruction. And so writing years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah talks about, speaks of this Redeemer, this Savior, this King, and what he's going to do when he comes. Why did He come into the world? Isaiah 61 and verse 2, He came to console, to comfort those who mourn, to strengthen those who mourn in Zion by giving them a turban instead of ashes, oil symbolizing joy instead of the oil of mourning, a garment symbolizing praise instead of a torn garment of discouragement. They will be called oaks of righteousness, trees planted by the Lord to reveal His splendor. And so Jesus accomplished His mission by bearing your sins and my sins and carrying our sorrows. And so we can be comforted and should be comforted in the realization that through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, our sins have been forgiven. And so that realization invokes this godly sorrow when we truly come to grips with what Christ has done for us. It should produce this godly sorrow which brings repentance that leads to salvation, which we read about earlier. And so that's, that's the beautiful verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in it, Paul lists this catalog of sins. Some of you were living in the kingdom of some pretty destructive, ungodly things. And as we read earlier, look at verse 11. And that is what some of you, what? Were. Some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so in Christ, the spiritual mourner can say, I'm forgiven. I am cleansed. I have been washed. I have been justified before God. I'm not the person I want to be, but I'm also not the person I used to be. I've been changed now. And this this sanctification has begun in me. See, not only is the kingdom of God an already existence, but not yet reality. Our sanctification, our perfection in Christ is an an already happening, but not yet fulfilled. We will be fulfilled in judgment. And so, one day I will experience and see fully this eternal kingdom of God. But for now, because of Christ... I can and I will pray, Thy kingdom come in my life today. God, Your will be done in my life today. And that's comfort for those who mourn. That's a blessing. We are not shut out of the kingdom of God. Because repentance and forgiveness 
opens the door to the kingdom. But you cannot be raised in blessing and joy until you have bowed down in repentance and mourning. And so we need to mourn over the sins of others also. Instead of getting angry at those around us who outright reject God, or get angry at those who profess Christ but live against His will when we're trying to do the best we can do, instead of getting angry and griping about all the, how evil they are or, or how rebellious they are, we should mourn for them. We should mourn for them. And while our mourning will not bring about their repentance, it will bring about our own. And that perhaps we have not done all that we could and should do to share the blessing of God's kingdom with them other than just gripe about who they are and how they act. Jesus looked over Jerusalem. He looked over all those who had rejected His message and He cried out, not in condemnation, but He cried out in deep sorrow. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so when our anger at the world around us turns to sorrow for the world around us, then we align ourselves with the heart of Jesus and with His kingdom message. And when that sorrow provokes us to act in a kingdom way, then we are aligning ourselves with the way of Jesus. And so for many, sin is either, either humorous or they simply don't care. It's either a joke, something to be made fun of, or they're simply indifferent to it. But to those who are truly moved to deep, Painful sorrow by the condition of the lost. This soothing comfort is abundant in that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And multitudes have no remorse or feeling of guilt over their lawless lives. But for those, for kingdom people, kingdom residents, for those whose pierced consciences cause them to agonize in godly sorrow, there's an abundance of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And that eases the wounded conscience. And so the real mourner becomes an intercessor. They're a prayer. And so if you're really mourning the sins and the needs of others, you're constantly praying for them. And when we turn to God in biblical mourning intercession, He hears our prayers. Psalm 125 and verse 6 says, "...those who shed tears as they plant..." will shout for joy when they reap the harvest. And what a picture that is, right? Because it foreshadows in the Old Testament just what Jesus is teaching here on this mountainside as a principle of the kingdom. You sow in tears and mournful prayers for those who are on your heart, and then you go and do something about it. And you will reap with joy. So God will comfort us as He blesses our tearful prayers for those that are on our hearts. It's, not a, it's a problem many of us can have trying to circumvent the process. We, get, we, we want to get around it. So we just want the comfort, but we don't want to mourn first. We, God, just fix this, but I don't want to have to do anything about it to help the problem. And we want the joy of salvation, but we don't want to mourn and face our sins first. Or we want the joy of the Christian life, but without mourning our individual sins first. 
We want to reap the joy, answered prayers in, in our lives of, of, of our loved ones, but we don't want to sow in tears in intercessory prayers first. And so we want to have the joy of Resurrection Sunday, but we don't want the pain of the cross that has to come first. You see, the truth is, there is no resurrection without death. There is no resurrection without a death first. And there's no real joy without the mourning of godly sorrow that leads to repentance and action first. And so Isaiah 66, 1, This is what the Lord says, Heaven is My throne, and the earth is My footstool. Where is the house you will build for Me? Where will My resting place be? Has not My hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord? These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. So in other words, God is saying we can't build a place here on earth where we can find and meet God. There is nothing we can create with our hands. A place where we can meet God. Not the temple in Israel and not this building that we're sitting in today. Because really, meeting God is not about going to a certain place. Remember, kingdom... It's where the will of the king is carried out. So God says it's about hearts. It's about the kind of hearts my people will have. That's where I will meet you. In the heart of a pure person. And what kind of heart does God say He'll engage with? One that is humble. And one that is remorseful in spirit. And that virtually describes the first two Beatitudes, right? To be poor in spirit is to be humble. And to mourn is to be contrite. See, God doesn't meet us because we come to a certain physical location. He says, I will come to you and I will help you when you are poor in spirit. And when you mourn over your sins, you will realize my comfort. And when you realize that you're poor in spirit, it leads you to mourn your sin. And both of them together lead us to truly meet God in His kingdom come. And that's why Jesus tells us here, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Are you mourning today? Why? Are you mourning over sin in your life? God wants to turn that mourning into joy. But you've got to repent of that. Confess that sin. Turn away from it. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. And God will forgive. Are you mourning today because you don't know how to enter into this, this beautiful, blessed, eternal kingdom of God? Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. And so when I die to myself and I lay my sins at the feet of Jesus, He picks those up. He nails them to the cross with His body. And He dies for me. And just as He was buried in the grave, God raised Him up to be the eternal King in the kingdom forever. And I meet Him when I die to myself and I am buried with Him in the watery grave of baptism where I can be raised up in a new life, a new person, blessed with the Spirit of God, the promise of eternal life and the hope and the comfort to meet each day and each challenge on this earth with all the vigor and all the excitement of someone whose eyes are set on an eternal kingdom but who is ready and able to live in God's kingdom come today. We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song of encouragement. Where are you today?
What are you mourning? If you repent and turn of that, God will heal your broken spirit. This morning as we're gathered together, if we can pray for you and with you in your decision, will you let us know as you come as we stand and sing?